0: The JTap Podcast, Episode Twelve.
1: Send it. I can do that. Jtax, clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom.
0: Hey everybody, yeah, uh, welcome to Episode Twelve of the JTap Podcast. Seems like we're um, really rock and rolling with these now, and thank you, everybody, so much for leaning in. Uh, we've got um, an interesting. Um, side of the picture coming now through uh, a friend of ours called Dylan. Dylan, thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, Just so everyone's tracking, you know, I say it every time, but everyone's opinion on here is their own. It's not that of any organization and there's nothing that will come up in here that wouldn't be um, found in any open source document. Dylan, um, give us all a bit of background, man. Let's take it all the way back to the beginnings of your childhood. Where did you grow up? Um, What did the family look like? What is high school and sports and
1: that kind of stuff? All that good stuff. Yeah, no yeah. problem. So uh, I'm actually an Air Force brat. I was actually born in Ipswich. Uh, my dad was <laughs> a my dad was a hog driver doing one of the uh, the exchange programs at uh, RAF Bentwaters. So spent the uh, first, <clears throat> pardon me, first year of my life living in Ipswich, and then just kind of moved all around the country. Um, you know, following my dad to different Air Force bases until. Uh, Early 2000s, went to live in D.C. for a little while and then uh, settled in Colorado, where I uh, graduated high school and then joined the Army. And that was 2010 when I joined the Army. Spent five years in the Army as an Abrams crewman. Um, That was my second choice. I was supposed to be a a Blackhawk mechanic, but that didn't work out. Uh, Did a, a year and some change in South Korea followed by three and a half years at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, working as an as an instructor. So actually teaching new guys how to tank. Um, got out of the Army in 2015, went and used the, the GI Bill to go to flight school. So I'm now a commercial helicopter pilot. I worked for uh, Sundance Helicopters in Vegas doing the Grand Canyon tours. And I also worked for a, a company in Florida doing beach tours and do some some flight instruction here on the side. Um, all the sports I played in high school were like not the normal ones. I was terrible at sports. I, uh, I played a season of Pee Wee baseball, Little League baseball, hit the ball once, uh, went to one basketball practice, got hit in the face with the ball, said, no, I'm good. Um, played soccer a little bit or, or football, as you call it, sorry, uh, and did some uh, some roller hockey in Texas. Um, all the other sports I did were more on the extreme side, so I did a lot of snowboarding Played a lot of paintball, did a lot of uh, rafting, a lot of backpacking and stuff like that. So, you know, kind of an a, a interesting childhood getting to grow up all around the country and, and the world. So it's, it's you know, helped me become more of a more rounded person, I guess. Yeah, Roger that. You So you said your dad
0: obviously served. Is there anybody else? You got brothers and sisters?
1: Yeah, so my brother, um, I've got... Oh, boy. I've got a full brother, a half-sister, and four step-siblings. Um,
0: no, yeah, so my,
1: yeah, my, my brother um, was a mechanic in the Air Force for a while. He, or not a mechanic, sorry. He was um, security forces in the Air Force. He's a mechanic now. Um, he was stationed in Montana, um, basically just riding around in a Huey with a machine gun looking for people trying to get on the nuke fields. Yeah. Um, Dad was Air Force. He actually just retired after 32 years of service in January. Um, he flew flew the hog for 20-odd years. He was a JTAC, too. He actually he went to Afghanistan as a JTAC um, when he was, like, 43 years old. So, you know, old guy running around trying to do young guy stuff. But he, uh, he still kicked my ass, so he did all right. Uh, and then before that, um, my grandpa was a tanker. So that's kind of my influence for for want to be on tanks. My great grandpa flew bombers in uh, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And then going further than back, you know, further back than that, there's just guys everywhere. We've we've had you know a long history of being in the military. Yeah. So obviously,
0: I, I a lot of guys, you know, have family that serve and things, and they hear the calling themselves. But is there anything that stands out to you? Was it a conversation you had with somebody or, you know, even where one of your families or um, someone that you just went, do you know
1: what? I'm going, I'm going to go and serve now.
0: Can you, do you know that lightning moment?
1: You know, it, it wasn't so much a, a lightning moment as it was just, just through, through my whole childhood, just growing up in that environment. I just knew it's what I wanted to do. The, there was one lightning moment, I guess, that that caused me to join the army when I was, Fourteen, um, I actually went on a, a Grand Canyon tour in a helicopter with Sundance. And up till then, I was like, yeah, I'm going to join the Air Force and be a fighter pilot. It's going to be awesome. And then the helicopter landed at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And I said, airplanes are dumb. I want to fly helicopters. This shit is so cool. Um, so at that point, I was like, okay, well, I want to fly helicopters. And my dad told me that helicopter pilots in the Air Force are kind of second-rate citizens uh, you know, coming from a fighter jack. So I I decided that the army was going to be for me at that point. So the whole time I was joined in the army, the plan was to be around helicopters until I got to MEPS, which is the, the, the entrance processing facility where you go sign a contract and a doctor looks at you and all that stuff. Um, the, the guidance counselor, they call them said that my eyes weren't good enough to be a mechanic um but he saw that my second choice was tankers and he he offered me uh seventeen hundred dollars to go be a tanker i okay. was 18 yeah i was 18 and never had that much money in my life so it's like oh yeah tanks, cool let's do it so i wound up a tanker much of that
0: um mm-hmm. so obviously you've gone in uh to the military there as a tanker what is what is basic training look like i know obviously it's probably pretty similar to everybody else's start but what what's the step over when you get onto like uh, onto tracks what's the difference
1: so the 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 big difference with the 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 tanker (laughs) basic training and the army does this with a couple different um jobs and skill sets is from the day you you get there on the bus and get yelled at to the day you leave to go to your unit you have the same drill sergeants, the same instructors. You're with the same guys for the entire um, five month process. So unlike you know other other MOSs where you might go to Fort Benning for for eight weeks and then go you know somewhere else for a couple of years, um, the the tanker basic training is a relatively quick process and it's with the same guys the whole time because their their sort of rationale is that they'll teach you the basics of tanking, which is really just being a driver and a loader. And then when you get to your your actual unit and get assigned to an actual tank, they'll teach you how to really do everything else. So, you know, the first, I'd say the first five weeks are really all just basic soldiering. So learning how to march, learning how to shoot, you know, making sure you're not uh, a fat slob. You can actually do some PT and, and survive, stuff like that. And then typically around week six, they start introducing some some tank stuff but more just general mounted warfare stuff so we start learning about you know convoys with humvees and and engaging targets from from trucks and stuff like that and then instead of having a break after basic training you just get what's called family day weekend um which is where you you get a weekend off and you can go 30 miles outside of the post so so most guys just went to um lexington i think it was kentucky Mm -hmm. i can't remember exactly where it was at but um, my family hated me, so we stayed on Fort Knox the entire time my family day weekend. Like, I just wanna get <laughs> off this damn place and you're making me stay here. Okay. They're like um yes, gotta go visit. Yeah, exactly. But so you get two days off and then you jump right into the tank stuff. So when you get into the tank stuff, there's um you know, the army actually uses a lot of simulators to to teach guys on tank stuff now. So we have a a there's a full motion driver simulator. That yeah, it's got the 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 driver's hole of whether it's an M1A1 or an M1A2, they've got both setups, and then it's actually full motion. You can hook up the the night vision, all that good stuff, and, and get a feel for driving it. They have full crew simulators, so they'll they'll put a guy in each position, and they're linked up to all the other crew simulators, so you can actually you know see the other guys driving their tanks and moving and maneuvering um, together in this one big virtual world. And then you do a lot of time in the motor pool, um, just kind of learning the basic systems of the tank, learning how to how to do maintenance on it, learn how to make sure that it's running right. And then you go out to the field, and the field is where it really gets fun because you go out and you're actually sleeping on the tanks, you're you're shooting, you're you're finally doing all that cool guy stuff. You're you're getting to, you know, put a couple main gun rounds downrange during the the 50 cal on the the top of the turret and, and blasting away with that, and and that's a good time. Uh, and then you get to go do the off road um, driver's training, which is, you know, that's, that's what they show you in the recruiting video where the tank gets, you know, like six feet of air. You're just like, Oh, I want to do that. <laughs> this is when you do get to do that. But if you actually get six feet in the air, uh, you break the tank and they yell at you and then you have to go fix it. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh.
0: yeah right. I, um, I've done a few, uh, training rotations over in California, um, obviously on the big train area down there. Mm-hmm. with the first cab and people like that and when those um boys get rocking and rolling it, they it, when they look like they're doing maybe they're doing 30 miles an hour but they look like they're doing 100 they're just yeah. when those things start moving it's like when an elephant starts running you're like that that thing shouldn't move that fast
1: oh yeah, yeah. they're yeah. they're governed at 45 miles an hour
0: um yeah
1: i've i've gotten one to go 50 before and it was the most terrifying experience of my life yeah it just—it felt like the tracks were going to fly off. It was fun, but I was also just like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that." No
0: Yeah, thing. and in the and in the desert, the unique thing like when the main gun goes off, the the uh, vehicle disappears in a cloud mm-hmm. of dust that it creates for itself. Oh yeah, yeah, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty cool. So it's obviously, you time. had the um, you had the opportunity then to go over to um, Korea and all that, all, all that. But you came back and you got to be an instructor. So obviously, having your going through your own basic training, having your own experience, spending some time on your units and stuff, and then getting to go back and do it again as an instructor, what would you say was the biggest sort of change in that time period? Because it's, it's an interesting sort of like set of dates. Um, when you look at it, obviously, there's some big changes in the world from when you join um, until you become an instructor. Yeah. So there's some obvious changes in those dates that we would all be aware of. What do you think the biggest change was when you went back and had another look
1: at it from the other side of the curtain? You know, seeing it from the other side of the curtain, it, it was a really unique and and sort of great eye-opening uh, opportunity for me. It was, it was really cool because I, I went, you know, I, I basically just spent a year away from my training unit. Um, I tried to deploy, tried to go somewhere else, but it, it didn't work out. So I wound up back in my training unit. Um, but being there on the other side, it was really cool to see a more relaxed side of sort of the, the drill sergeants and the other instructors and kind of get to know them and hear more about their experiences and use that when I started teaching. Cause I, I got to Fort Benning in 2011, late 2011. Um, but I didn't start actually instructing for about two years. I, I was basically, there was this crusty uh, staff sergeant that I worked for that had been in the army for 27 years and was still an E6 um, yeah. just cause he was a piece of, trash um but i was basically his his uh his bitch for for two years i should probably is language okay before i just keep using yeah language? man get it out there okay. you know okay yeah um i was basically this dude's bitch for for two years and it was just terrible i was doing his job he was getting a recognition for it it was it was great um but once i was done you know being a bitch then i actually got got back on the tank and got to start teaching guys it was really cool because as as an instructor and not a drill sergeant, you know, the, the drill sergeants are sort of more blunt instruments. They're, they're, you know, they're teaching, but they're also breaking guys down and trying to rebuild them. And, and they have to be, you know, assholes pretty much all the time. But as the instructor, you know, there are times when I certainly had to be an asshole, but I didn't have to be an asshole all the time. So yeah. I, it, it allowed me a much better opportunity to just sort of, you know, get one-on-one time with these guys and, and teach them. And, and actually make more of an influence because I wasn't there screaming at them. I was just giving them tips as, as a guy that was, you know, young and still relatively new in the service. So they were more likely to listen to me because they could identify with me more. Um, so I was able to tell them stuff, you know, as, as far as like just tricks around the tank. Like I, I taught them how to wire music up so you can listen to music when you're driving. Um, you know, I taught them how to cook off the, uh, the, the vent, um, the exhaust for the turbine there. I taught him how to cook off that. I taught him how to like make a tent using the the gun tube over the side of the deck. You know, I, I you know, got to teach him a lot of cool little things that that helped me as as a, a brand new soldier at my first duty station that the 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 drill sergeants weren't really giving them. And drill sergeants are great. They they you know they do. A great job at what they do, but you know it was nice to be able to sort of get a little more relaxed with them and just give them some more valuable one-on-one input than they were getting with the drills. Yeah, love that. Um,
0: so, obviously, integrating um, yourself—I know from my experience—obviously, embedded in pretty much every cavalry unit, they have uh, AH, you know, and they consider themselves an, an independent unit inside of that um, battalion or uh, sorry an Italian inside of a brigade in their own independent mm-hmm. right but obviously um, although the Air Force has JTAX, um specifically inside uh, those units to support that a lot of the time the the coordination is is done from what I've seen straight tanker to to rotary can you
1: talk us through a little bit of how that that rolls out yeah so so we can do it a couple of different ways. We can go either straight from the tank, you know, the, the, the tank commander of, of, you know, if it's an individual tank or a two, two ship out, um, in, in our case, it was the, the platoon leader. So the one tank was the one that was talking and, and doing all the coordinating. Um, but so essentially we would, we would, you know, the, the Apaches would, would come on station and they tell us, you know, what kind of ordinance they got, how much playtime they had and, and, um, you know, where they were going to be coming from basically it's a little fuzzy it was like 10 years ago so um but the when I got to Korea we had M1A ones um only had those for about a month and then we upgraded to the we got brand new M1A two set v twos and that's a whole lot of acronyms there. Um but the the set v2 did a lot of cool things and that it added um a dedicated thermal site for the commander that looks kind of like R2D2, just sitting on top of the tank. So you can operate that independently of the main gun. So the gunner can scan, you know, one direction, the tank commander can scan the other. Um, That thermal viewer for the commander also tied into our communication system on the tank. So they upgraded it with a, a commander's display that essentially was, you know, Google maps, advanced because it would show us where friendly positions were. It would show us where, um you know, known enemy positions were sus- suspected enemy positions were stuff like that. Um The great thing about the tank that made it really easy to, to call in targets for, for these guys is that the commander can look at a spot, you know, in the world with his, his thermal viewer um lays it and get the exact coordinates for that to pop up on his, um, on his display, he could then send those coordinates via like a text message or just by telling the guys on the radio, the coordinates, and we could send that stuff directly to the Apache because it was a, a hundred killer pair we were working with. So one was the, the D model with the, the radar lobe on top of the mass there. And the other one was just a normal Apache. Um, but so we could send that target directly to the Apache with the radar lobe, um, and the enhanced, you know, systems. And he could tell his wingman exactly where to shoot. So it was almost to the point where we didn't have to talk to these guys to get him to shoot stuff. We could point at something, which was great for tankers because that's all we do is point and shoot stuff. Um, We could point at something with the laser, get the coordinates, send that in a text message to the helicopter, and then they would go blow it up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's uh, that uh, that kind of stuff when you see it like uh, playing out and you see, you know, a whole. um squadron coming online and then the apaches lining up on their sort of like on their flanks and stuff and it's just it seems to happen you know in just in a continuous wave and mm. you're like the digital capability that, that that's going on there is because yes. obviously there's not as much voice traffic when you're watching it uh it's just incredible to to like track along with um so what's the biggest myth that you think that you'd want to dispel about tankers Oh,
1: um, none of us are like Brad Pitt. <laughs> Every, everyone's seen Fury and, and there's a lot of stuff that Fury did right. Um, as far as just sort of the tank crew dynamic, but, but none of us are, are like the, the, the war daddy that's just, you know, cruel to, to guys until they, they, you know, earn their place and prove that they're, they deserve to be there. And then you're, you're a father figure. Like, that's just. That's not how it works in a, in a crew dynamic. You don't want to alienate guys on your crew at all. Like we, you know, we would fuck with new guys plenty. Um, we used to just make, make new guys go do soft spot checks for, on the armor. So we'd, I'd grab a hammer and I'd go up to one of the side skirts and I say, Hey man, really important. We need to get this armor checked out. So what I need you to do is smack the armor with this hammer. Right. And if it sounds like this spot and I would hit a spot and it would make a certain sound, I'd be like, you're good. And then you move on. But if it sounds like this spot and I would hit another spot and it'd make just a slightly different sound, I would say, I need you to take this chalk and put an X on there. So the mechanics know they need to come around and strengthen the armor. And I'd be like, I'll come back in like 20 minutes, check on you, and then we'll get the mechanics to come back. And so I'd walk away and I'd, you know, grab a cup of coffee with the other guys or whatever. And I'd come back and the the damn tank would just have X's all over the armor. <laughs> and they'd be like, sorry, not I don't know if we're going to be all right. This armor's just messed up everywhere, and we would just laugh. But you know, yeah. there's that is much different than than in Fury when he you know makes him just kill a a, a prisoner. We we don't know. your your crew integration. Like you you get to the point at the end of that where you're a family, you're a very tight group of guys. But there's there's no, or at least there shouldn't be any of that sort of alienation that that happens at the beginning. Roger that. What's
0: uh. What's the best story? The story that either always comes out at home. I'm sure you and your uh, your dad have some back and forth being Air Force and Army. I'm sure there's some good fun at at, uh, Thanksgiving or whatever, or or when you hang out with the guys that you used to serve with. What's the big story that always comes out? um, One time when Dylan did this. (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, the one time Dylan did this would probably be when I almost had to pay for a hundred and fifty thousand dollar part for the tank. Um, We were, we were at a gunnery in Korea. So this is our, our, you know, net gunnery. So we were were getting the new tanks out there and shooting them for the first time. And I've got all kinds of cool stories. And that was a blast. We were just down the field for like three months straight. It was awesome. Um, But the, my tank, when, when it's a brand new tank, you have to, um, you know, do some initial rounds through the main gun just to make sure it's safe. And when you do those, no one's inside the tank. And then you have to, to bore sight the tank to make sure that the, the gun actually holds. And part of that is you laze your target, and the, the computer in the tank is supposed to just hold the reticle on that target. And you do the test, and if after, you know, I think it was a minute, if after a minute there's less than a certain amount of droop, then you're good. Um, our tank wasn't holding level. We were drooping a certain amount, which wasn't really visible on the, the actual um, gunner sight, but, you know, when you're shooting at targets four kilometers away, um, makes a huge difference. So they had to come and replace our elevation servo in the tank. Um, so mechanics brought it by and we were on the barracks. Mechanics said, hey, we got your part. Can we go, go meet us at the tank and open it up? And so they drive out there with the Humvee and they put the part on the front slope of the tank. And this was a, it's a monster part, but it's just, it sits awkward. Like it, it almost looked like a transmission for a car, but it was sitting on like two Legos were keeping it upright. And so I get out there and I'm thinking, if I put this thing on its side, it'll be a lot more stable and probably not fall off the tank. So <laughs> I tried to adjust it and then it falls off the damn tank. Oh, man. I, I could feel it coming. Yeah. So the, where I really fucked up is I didn't tell anyone that I did that. Like I, I was like, no, I, I got out there and it was on the ground. Um, and then of course, you know, my platoon sergeant had been in the army for 20 years at that point. He knew I was full of shit. Yeah. Um, so he's like, okay, whatever. Um, he didn't do anything to me, but my gunner, um, took me out behind the barracks and just smoked the dog shit out of me for like six hours. Yeah. And he's like, you better hope that part works. Otherwise you're going to be paying for it. And okay. and luckily it worked and, and the tank was good, but God, I learned never to fuck with expensive shit ever again. Yeah. Yeah
0: leave well alone mm-hmm. and uh i think there's a i think there's a lesson to be learned there for uh, young guys in military Is like the truth will set you free you know yeah the short-term pain is worth the
1: long-term gain when it comes to telling the truth you know, exactly yeah never if, let if, you if, yeah as long as you didn't do anything illegal you know fess up to it um yeah. if it's a part or something like that just fess up to it and it will you know i, I guarantee you it will be better than than the alternative yeah mm-hmm. so
0: you obviously you've decided that uh, you've got you've got your out and um, and you've um used your gi bell in an interesting way what is that is that just because you wanted to fly or or what was the spark that took you over to back to helicopters
1: yeah i mean you know like i like i mentioned earlier um you know i grew up around aviation my whole life because my dad you know flew the hog so i'd I'd be you know seeing planes go by all the time and then like i said i wanted to fly airplanes until i did the 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 Grand Canyon tour when I was 14, yeah, 14 years old, did the Grand Canyon helicopter tour. And at that point, I was just like, yeah, I, this is way cooler than airplanes just being able to take off and land wherever you want. So when I was in the Army, you know, my plan was, okay, I can't go be a mechanic right off the bat, but I'm going to try and and either reclass or, or drop a warrant officer packet so I can go fly. Um, so I tried to drop a warrant officer packet and at the time you needed a 100 GT score on your ASVAB and I had a 109. So I, I dropped a packet and literally the day before I dropped the packet, they changed it. So you needed a 110 GT score and they weren't doing any waivers. So I was one, one point shy of, of being able to, to get a warrant slot. Um, and then I thought I, I, I came to one point where the, the tanker, um, tanker field was, was overstrengths, there were too many tankers, and Black Hawk mechanics were understrengths. So they needed more Black Hawk mechanics. So I thought, hey, that's perfect. I'll just, you know, swap over, do that for a while, and then, um, you know, and then drop a warrant officer packet from within an aviation unit because it'll be a lot easier. Um, took me forever to get the paperwork submitted because brigade and battalion just kept dragging their feet. Um, brigade processed my paperwork wrong and thought it was a a reenlistment reclass, not just a, a normal reclass. Um, so they denied my paperwork and by the time I could get it resubmitted, uh, the job fields were balanced again so i couldn't couldn't do that um, and there were some some other things going on where the army just kind of screwed me that I decided i'm just going to get out and and go fly as a civilian so i've always wanted to be a pilot and you know helicopters for for half my life now um and so as soon as i found out that the the gi bill pays for for flight training i was all over that i mean yeah. it was a really great experience yeah um
0: so uh, go flying like full circle back to the company that took you over the grand canyon um you got any uh stories about obviously you know a lot of us look at helicopters and the guys who have served who have uh, flown on on the back of them those things basically shouldn't be in the sky <laughs> um, have you got any unexplainable stories? You know the old uh, the old Godpin um, fable about only one pin holds the whole thing together. But have you got any yeah the G- Jesus one? From- yeah. yeah. Is it uh, is there anything that's ever happened when you've been flying? You're like I don't know how that happened, but it seems to be okay.
1: Um, I've been very lucky with flying, and I'll, I'll knock on wood that nothing you know nothing gnarly has happened to me yet. Um, you know, really the only the only close calls I've had. I was, I was working with a student in Arizona. We were up at 9,000 feet and our, our fuel filter light came on, which, which meant that something was, was potentially clogging the, the fuel flow again from the tank to the engine. Um, and so we were at 9,000 feet. So we were, we were 4,000 feet above the actual ground there. Um, and we, we both just decided that we needed to get to the ground as, as quickly as possible. Um, and the student I was teaching, he was actually an instructor student. So this was his last rating. And then he was going to start teaching people like I was. Um, and so I let him handle everything. And that was a really cool moment as an instructor to see your your student actually making all the decisions without any prompting from you. Um, you know, he couldn't see the light come on because he was wearing these, these view limiting devices we wear to simulate flying in the clouds. Um, so I saw the light come on. And I I took control and said, hey, take your your fogles off and and handle this. And he did. He did it perfectly. He he got us back to the airport. He made all the radio calls perfectly. He knew exactly what that light meant, and he he handled everything great. And you know, it was it was really rewarding as an instructor to see. You know, that was the moment where I was like, okay, this guy is going to be great with students. Like, I feel totally comfortable signing this guy off and sending him to go fly with someone that has no idea what they're doing in a helicopter. Um, yeah, that's that's you know, I've been very lucky. That's the only time I've had. Anything go wrong? Um, I've had, you know, run-ins with weather where I wound up landing in a field in the middle of Arizona, or or having to, you know, go fly over the bay to to get back to the airport in Florida. Um, but you know, that's the beauty of helicopters, is it? When something like that happens, you always have the option to just land it wherever you want. Yeah, and yeah. and unfortunately, it seems like a lot of helicopter pilots forget that. Um and so you have, you know, people people crashing and dying because they're afraid to just land the damn thing when that's what it was designed to do. It just land wherever you want.
0: Oh sure, Um I'm sure you might have heard this on the podcast before, but what do you hydrate on? What's uh what's going in the Yeti cup on the way out to the helicopter? Coffee.
1: Coffee. You got a coffee? coffee. Um Not coffee like me. You know what? I, I'm a big um Dutch Bros fan. I, I know you don't have those over there, but so if there, if there's a Dutch Bros on my way to work, I'm stopping there. Um, otherwise I really like, uh, Daz Bog coffee. Um, they have this, this KGB blend stuff that I like. And I always, every time I buy it, I send a picture of it to my wife cause she's Russian, um, um strictly just to, to get a, a rise on her. Cause her mom is a, a spy. I swear. She knew I failed calculus <laughs> in college twice somehow without me telling her. Um, but so i I, you know i always send a picture like look your mom sent me more coffee um (laughs) yeah but no so it's it's usually it's it's usually coffee out there in florida um when i'm flying in the summer a lot of water and a lot of pedialyte too um because you know we we take the door off on helicopter because it doesn't have ac um but even with the door off it's only cool when you're flying at 100 knots yeah Um, when you're sitting on the ground waiting for your next batch of passengers it is stupid hot so by the end of the day. You know, I'll have sweat out at least two, three pounds. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, when I when I started that job uh, last June, I was two hundred and forty one pounds, uh, and by the end of the season, I was two hundred and three pounds. Nice weight from, loss program. If anyone's looking yeah, around. yeah, uh, go fly a helicopter when it's you know one hundred and ten degrees outside. That'll do the trick.
0: Yeah. And then when uh, you get home in the evening, is there a particular bottle on the shelf that you like anything yeah
1: going on? i'm usually grabbing for the whiskey um yeah. i really like stranahan's it's a denver whiskey brewed right here in colorado um bullet bourbon is really good um one of my good friends turned me on to eagle rare which is yeah. some great stuff too but yeah. i i'm yeah i'm a good i'm a big whiskey guy there's a there's a place out here uh called william oliver's and it's it's like a pub Um, but their whole thing is, is whiskey and scotch. They've got, I think like 350 different whiskeys and scotches and bourbons. And they make, you know, they'll make you a cocktail with all of them. Uh, they do have food too. And it's, it's, you know, all sort of, um, English, Irish pub fare. Um, but they'll, one of their appetizers is just a pint of bacon and it's just a pint glass filled with bacon strips. And they bring you, maple syrup to dip it in and then maple whiskey to dip it in and dipping bacon in maple, maple whiskey is just a life changing experience that I highly (laughs) recommend you check out. Yeah. You're getting a lot of nods around here. (laughs) Oh yeah, sure. So dude,
0: sort of throwing yourself back uh, into your uh, tanker life or your military life. If I was going to say, right, you're on a, you can only, you're on a desert Island. You can only take three uh, items with you to jump up into the, um, into the back of the Abr- Abram. What are you going to take with you? Mm.
1: Wait, so I'm on the island with a tank? I'll give you the tank. I'm spoiling you. The tank. Okay. okay. Uh, let's see. I've got the tank, so my shelter's good. Um, you know, definitely bring a, a rifle. You know, probably just something decent for hunting. I'd bring an AK just because I like those. Um, and then. Man, my third item. You know, I probably have to bring a uh, like an e-reader with with just a bunch of books on it. We need to kill time. You know, I got everything else I need on the tank except for entertainment. Um, so I'm gonna bring an e-reader loaded with with books. Yeah, that was a cheeky
0: one there at the end. I like that. It's like instead mm-hmm. of saying books, you're like I'm gonna have an e-reader, but I'm gonna fill it with books. I'm gonna
1: fill you, it with you, books. You got, yeah,
0: you managed to outflank me there on that one. I, I got gotcha. you, <laughs> dude. Thank you so much for coming on. If there was um, a closing thought that you'd put out to the entire community, you know, serving uh, veterans, guys on the ground, uh, um, and aviators all together, what what would your closing
1: thought be? You know, my my closing thought. I kind of want to want to put this out there. I've seen so many of of my friends and just other veterans get get out and feel like they just have have nothing going on and no one to talk to. So my big thing is if you're going to get out of the military, make sure you have a plan. That's, that's your starter. You know, I, when I got out, I had a plan, executed it and now I'm flying helicopters. Um, but the the biggest thing I've seen when, when guys get out is they, you know, they're afraid to, to talk to people. Um, it's, it's difficult reintegrating into civilian life and it's difficult not being around your buddies all the time, but there are Plenty of groups out there that you can go just find that that same people, with the same mindset, talk to them, you know, talk to people you're in with, hell talk to me. Um, you know, I'm always open to, to talk to other vets, but don't, don't get out without a plan and don't be afraid to talk to people once you're out. Cause you know, the demons are there. You got to be able to fight them and sometimes you need help. So just yeah. make sure you talk to people. Watch that good,
0: strong message there. I mean, I think you'll hear me say it. A lot but we're stronger together than apart so don't let Absolutely. that ego get in the way of you like making a phone call i'll put um dylan's uh details in the bio below and if you know him or you serve with him at all make sure you you reach out and maybe hook up um if you want to speak to anybody obviously you can more than happy for you guys to reach out to us as well dylan thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it yeah sure thing thanks for having me it's a lot of fun thank you and i appreciate you taking the time to listen All our podcasts sit on the Nine Foot Night Killer Collective, Soul Feed, Forge Not Made and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community and we really appreciate them. Thank you everybody for listening.